Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Will you get a little bloody? Yes, probably. But that's what people want in their debates. And then you and I together, we bury her. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. Where I come from down south, we call that as clear as a glass of moonshine. On House of Cards. Not your average recap show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one we're devoting to episodes 10 and 11, which we're calling Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And I'm joined by Ron Klain, former chief of staff to Vice Presidents Al Gore and Joe Biden. Welcome, Ron. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Amy Chozik, political reporter and current Hillary Clinton chronicler for The New York Times. Amy, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so in this podcast, we're going to focus mostly on one plot line, Frank Underwood in campaign mode. We're going to slide by pretty much episode 10, in which the Jordan Valley mission comes to a close. Claire dyes her hair back to blonde in response to polls. And we'll focus on episode 11, which offers a close-up of Underwood, aspiring presidential nominee. So... The central action here is a debate between Frank and his real rival, Heather Dunbar, and his pretend rival, Jackie Sharp. When we first see Frank, he's getting prepped by his vice president, Donald Blythe, playing the role of Dunbar. Is this the man who should be president? Miss Dunbar, like any good lawyer, you have a knack for rhetoric ish, but the American people are tired of words. What they crave is action. You- My concern about focusing on the word action is that she'll just come back with failed actions. America works, the UN mission. Action performed well with key demos in our last poll. Yes, but doesn't this take us off message? You need a word that goes beyond America works, something that can be used for anything. Ron, you headed up President Obama's debate prep in the last election, right? Uh, Yes, I did. And you've prepped John Kerry and Bill Clinton, right? Indeed I have. (laughs) So, does this strike you as plausible? Uh, I think it's roughly plausible. I mean, in general, by the time you have the candidates rehearsing at the podiums that you'd be debating over such fundamentals as to how you'd frame the core argument, you know, seems a little over the top. But yeah, I mean, candidates practice for their debates. They practice extensively, particularly for high stakes debates. And part of getting ready for a debate is figuring out what your core argument is going to be and how you'll frame it. But, you know, a big part of debate prep, particularly for sitting presidents, is really getting used to the format. And, uh, you know, Amy and all journalists who cover presidents know that they're very used as president to not being told that their answer has to be limited to just one minute. Uh, They're used to six, seven, eight-minute answers and kind of controlling the conversation. Amy, I've heard a lot of stories about candidates just getting pissed off. I heard that during a Bill Clinton prep from someone who was there, that he basically said, I don't need to take this shit, and he walked out, at least momentarily. And I also have read Obama didn't really want to prep, and that's why he came off weak in the first Romney debate. 
<laughs> yeah, I've heard that uh, Bill Clinton story too, so I'm curious if Ron can confirm. <laughs> but no, I th- David Axelrod actually writes about this in his memoir of President Obama. He just couldn't be bothered to prepare for that debate. And I think that's something that I sort of wanted to see a little more of from Frank Underwood. Why isn't he just like, <laughs> why the hell am I doing this? I'm the most powerful man in the free world, and I have to poll whether vision or action you know, resonates best with voters. Sitting presidents have debated their general election opponents six times and lost five out of six. Only President Clinton in 1996 beat his challenger in the first debate, Bob Dole. And that's, I think, generally because – and you see this a little bit in episode 11. When you put a sitting president at a podium next to his rival – and that rival is wearing the same blue suit and the same red tie, standing against the same background – the nature of that tends to elevate the rival and give the rival almost by definition a win. And secondly, the challengers had a lot more practice. In 2012, Mitt Romney had debated 23 times that year. Barack Obama had not even debated once. And so the challengers usually fresher with the debate format and comes to that first debate better prepared. And then, of course, the president is the president of the United States. It's not just that he thinks he has better things to do. He does have better things to do. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, in in response to your reaction to Frank Underwood putting up with this, all he ever really seemed to care about was getting and staying in that office, right? So this would be job number one. (laughs) Right, right. That's true, but as you point out, he never did it the traditional way. We haven't <laughs> seen sure. him winning votes. Let's go to the Byzantine strategy that Frank has put in place here. He's prepping Jackie on Air Force One for this debate we've been talking about, and Jackie's hesitant to follow Frank's orders to the letter. I thought we had an understanding. You were going to play pit bull while I played presidential. Will you get a little bloody? Yes, probably. But that's what people want in their debates. And then you and I together, we bury her. You drop out next week, endorse me, and the race is over. I have no problem being forceful. But this sexism thing and the whole school argument... Oh, you mean her kids. I really don't want to involve them. We have two things we want the American people to hear. She lacks experience and she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. But there has to be another way. So Frank has been asking Jackie to call Dunbar, first of all, sexist for attacking Claire's inexperience when she got the U.N. job, and also to attack Dunbar for sending her kids to private school when Jackie's own stepkids are being sent to private school. Now, we know Jackie's role is to siphon away votes from Dunbar, right? But this seems incredibly shaky ground, isn't it? I think that this is a strategic blunder by Frank in every single respect. His goal in this debate should be for Jackie to do as well as possible taking more of the anti-Underwood vote away from Dunbar. And the approach he lays out here for her is ridiculous. And in fact, when you see the debate itself and Jackie's not on that material and she's actually pounding away on Dunbar for what have you actually done for women and Dunbar's refusal to engage, like Jackie scores enormous points. So I just think – I think Frank's strategy here as a matter of debate strategy is badly wrongheaded. 
And then he compounds the error by attacking her uh, in the debate itself. I also thought in this period of the Biden-Palin debate, I remember writing about how Biden prepared to go against her and just treat her with the most respect that he could so that the sexist card would just be completely off the table. And you see, I mean, even when she says some things that he could obviously think were ridiculous, he just he was he was very respectful, very straightforward. He was just really on eggshells, which I didn't feel, you know, Frank had like any kind of adjusted his approach at all standing on stage with two women. And I actually thought that Jack Jackie's whole women thing sort of made me cringe. I mean, we're sort of looking at how Secretary Clinton is going to position herself as, as, you know, potentially being the first female president while also not overplaying it. And I just thought Jackie's whole opening message, everything being about women was uh, was overplaying and a little cringe inducing. All through this podcast, as we've been talking about House of Cards, we have speculated that things can't possibly be as evil and calculating in real life as they are in this program. I mean, people are getting murdered right and left, right? I think that in this episode, we hit a moment that is implausibly heroic. I just don't know if anyone's hat can be quite this white. This is when a very frustrated Jackie arranges a secret meeting with Heather Dunbar. She offers to drop out and endorse Dunbar if she'll make her secretary of defense. Dunbar understands that Frank is offering Jackie a spot on the ticket, but like I said... She's got a really white hat. I would love your support, Jackie, but I offer you nothing. This is an easy win. I'm not going to start selling off cabinet positions before I've won the White House. Those decisions will be based purely on merit. If I'm going to lock up this nomination for you, I deserve to be compensated. I plan on winning, Jackie. Just not your way. And with or without your support. Well, no spoilers, but her hat is not nearly as white as the other <laughs> No question. I thought that was interesting, and I also thought, well, it's very easy to take the high road when she's a brand-new candidate. She hasn't lost anything yet. It still looks like very much in her reach with or without promising Jackie anything. And so, sure, at that point, I thought it, it was believable that she would be so above it. I agree. Heather shouldn't offer her a job or agree to sell off a cabinet position, but – She's just downright rude to Jackie, and you'd think at the very least she would be saying things like, you know, you would be a great addition to my campaign, and I'd love to have your support. And Well, she does say, I would love to have your support. Yeah, but she says it in a way that doesn't really mean, I'd love to have your support. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it is actually realistic that at this stage in the game, particularly when you know Jackie's had some kind of deal with Underwood and the risk of a double-double, triple-double cross here is high, you wouldn't expose yourself by offering up a cabinet position only to have Jackie go to the press and say, Heather Dunbar offered me a seat in her cabinet if I would drop out. Ooh, But that would never happen in real life. That would never happen in real life, but (laughs) it could happen in House of Cards. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the big moment... The Great Debate. We're going to play some opening statements from each of the candidates, Frank having his folksy vision for the future, Dunbar going on the attack after Frank, and then finally, Jackie following Frank's orders. When you hire someone for a job, are you going to hire someone with 30 years experience or someone with less than 10 or someone with no experience at all? Where I come from down south, we call that as clear as a glass of moonshine. 
As for the president's experience, he was in the leadership during one of the most ineffective decades in congressional history. As president, he has failed at everything he's done. If that's what you call experience, you're not just padding the resume. You are fabricating it. Now, I don't agree with everything that President Underwood has done or proposes, but at least he knows what it means to work for a living. I can give you even better than that. I know what it means to fight for a living. I mean, I'm guessing Heather's is the best. From my perspective, I actually thought Jackie's was the best there because she builds to a point that she fought for our country, and I think that's her best argument for her own qualifications. I think Dunbar gave the response that I was dying for Hillary Clinton to give when she made the dead broke comment, which is, (laughs) am I well off? Absolutely. Does that impact how much empathy I have for people? No. Look at FDR. (laughs) Look at, you know, some of the greatest champions of populist causes have been incredibly wealthy. And so I thought she addressed the wealth issue in a smart way and in a way that it took the summer after Hillary Clinton made the dead broke comment, it took her a while to come around to that. (laughs) But I did think that Jackie was the only one that sort of had a vision. I kind of knew what her candidacy was about. I feel like Heather Dunbar was just like, this president failed. And the, come on, the folksy moonshine comment was like, give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Of all the three, I think we can agree that Underwood's opening statement is the worst for a couple reasons. I mean, one, it's a primary. He's to build up liberal voters. There's nothing in that for them, really. The folksy thing at the end both seems way out of step with where you want to be in Iowa and just not funny. And the worst thing you can do is try to be funny and bomb. And I think that's what Underwood does here with this opening statement. This is on House of Cards. We'll hear more from Ron Klain and Amy Chosick in just a minute. Okay, so now I'm going to play you this clip that I assume, if this were a real-life debate, would be the one that would be constantly playing on cable news after. Because it's easier to talk about America Works than to defend your indefensible UN mission. Well, at least I have a record to defend, Ms. Dunbar. Speaking of your record, Mr. President, you went on record saying you wouldn't run for president. And yet, here you are. it seems that your very thoughtful rules have gone out the window. You have no respect for rules, Mr. President. Take FEMA, for example. Oh, you want to talk about FEMA now instead of foreign policy? I am just following your lead, sir. See what a mess we get into when we follow your brand of leadership? A zinger. (laughs) Do you guys remember any zingers that had a lasting sting? Or at least a couple of news cycles? Well, I think if you go back to 2012, Governor Romney was talking about how, you know, we used to have such a large Navy. and, And then Obama said, yes, you know, we also used to have horses and bayonets in our Army, too. And that became a little bit of a zinger. You know, each debate, there's one or two memorable zingers where candidates get their shots in and help drive the coverage of it. I have to say the Obama zinger, that sort of sticks in my mind. And maybe this just tells you how uh, (laughs) shallow I am. But it was when he said in 2008, you're likable enough, Hillary. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that was a zinger that really backfired on him that ended up uh, really helping her, making her look vulnerable. And of course, she was sort of self-effacing when she was asked about the likability issue. And I think that was one of the most well-known lines from that cycle, for sure. And she ended up pulling off an unlikely win in New Hampshire. And and that's what I was going to say. I feel like sometimes these zingers backfire more than they work. I mean, I remember a debate in 2008 when Clinton and Obama, and I think she was trying to accuse him of sort of 
of plagiarizing or stealing something. And she said, that's not change you can believe in. That's change you can photocopy or something. And it was it was just crickets. It just sounded like Mark Penn had told her to use that line to be tough. There was another one she used to say. She used to say, it took a Clinton to clean up after the last Bush, and it'll take a Clinton to clean up after this Bush. No, that's not good. <laughs> Canned lines, they very rarely work. Yes, candidates do them from time to time. Yes, sometimes they are effective. But I think the really memorable zingers are the ones that come up on the spur of the moment, with one very famous exception, which is the most devastating debate zinger in American political history. Uh, oh, no, I knew you're, JFK. You're no, you're no Jack <laughs> yeah. Kennedy, which was carefully prepared, carefully rehearsed, absolutely canned. That was a Dan Quayle yeah, yeah, the, and the delivered ben- by uh- – Lloyd Benson, the Benson Quayle debate. I was actually thinking Reagan, I won't exploit your youth and inexperience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's also a very very good one from 1984, second Reagan Bondale debate. Yeah, and and look how different those two zingers were. Even though we knew in both cases we were being fed lines. I remember this bizarre. It was a debate in Ohio in 2008, right at the height of the the primary being so contested. And and the Clinton camp thought that Obama was getting an easy ride in the debates. And there was a Saturday Night Live skit where the moderator gave him a pillow. And they were just (laughs) hammering her. And I remember Hillary kind of interrupting in the middle of a question and said, is Barack comfortable? Would you like to offer him a pillow? (laughs) And like suddenly Saturday Night Live had become real life. And it was just this crazy meta moment. (laughs) Which really actually is an honest assessment of what these debates generally are, which is anything but substantive. So let's go to Frank's betrayal here. Jackie Sharp has just used the fact that Dunbar sends her kids to private school as evidence of her entitlement. And she's following Frank's orders here. And here's what Frank says. I have to say, I do think Ms. Dunbar has a point. I mean, speaking of hypocrisy, don't you send your own kids to private school, Congresswoman? Well, that wasn't my point. What was your point? Didn't you find that, even from Frank, just a little bit shocking? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's shocking in every way. It's it's just completely a-strategic. I mean, his whole strategy in this campaign is for Jackie to take votes away from Heather. So the fact that he crushes her uh, in this debate, it's just a bad move. She didn't even want to use the kid's line. (laughs) I'm more disappointed in Jackie for for following his orders. Not angry, just disappointed. (laughs) So disappointed. On behalf of women. You know, I was just thinking, though, in terms of shiv moments, the best ones are almost always self-inflicted. And I was thinking of uh, Rick Perry not being able to remember all of the uh, executive departments he wanted to get rid of. You know, it's just, it'll live in infamy. And I thought that with poor Jackie. Like, so say Jackie, like, eventually gets some uh, guts and establishes her own career separate from Underwood. That debate will constantly be replayed. As much as we talk about you're likable enough, they'll be talking about those. (laughs) People often think that, Uh, Running for president, uh, even if you lose, can be career-enhancing or resume-enhancing, and why not get in the race? But often candidates damage themselves very badly in these campaigns. And Rick Perry and the oops moment, these are things that stick with people forever, a dark cloud over them for the rest of their careers. And I think Jackie knows that because after the betrayal, she goes to see Frank in the Oval Office. He's insouciant, upbeat. 
But she says that she's uncomfortable with the, quote, dynamic that they've established, namely that she'll do anything, he says. And that really pisses off Frank. Sir? We had a deal, Jackie. And I am perfectly willing to hold up my end of the bargain. But do not be under any illusions. This is not a partnership of equals. Nothing close to it. If you are to be my vice president, you will do what I ask. And we will not have this conversation every time you feel uncomfortable with what I ask you to do or how I choose to conduct myself. That's our dynamic. (laughs) (laughs) So it's no wonder that Jackie decides to pull out of the race and endorse Dunbar. And it's the same attitude that Remy's been getting. So it's no wonder that he quits. I still wonder, though, why now? I mean, this merry band of Underwood pranksters has been paid for and and bought off for so long. Well, it looks like he's on his way down, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, and I think this is the whole central arc of House of Cards, which is how much Underwood's increasing power makes him less human, more alienated from the people around him. You know, this is just the next ratcheting up of that. Even his paid and hired hands can't stand him anymore. This is just an example of how far uh, he will go. He's not just an asshole. He's turning into a stupid asshole. Right. Well, he was. That's what I think. This season was really interesting because he was so good at getting there, and now that he's there, it's like he doesn't know how to handle it. And he's, on, as you said, being an asshole. He's alienated everyone. He might lose the White House. I mean, even his friend from the restaurant, who's the gardener now, can't stand to make small talk with him. <laughs> yeah, that was. I think critically Freddy. revealing, yeah. Freddie. Yes. Yeah, I love when he says, "You can't blame a snake for having fangs." Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we see a politician who sacrifices so much of themselves, especially when they're running, that there isn't much left at the end. And I'm thinking of, you know, John McCain, who had this hard-earned reputation as a maverick, which became a joke at the end of the 2008 election. He moved so far in order to court the base that... He wasn't the person he had advertised himself to be. And he didn't win. I mean, I think that voters can ultimately assess. I remember talking to a lot of women who supported Clinton in the primary, and then McCain sort of assumed that they'd be swept up in the Palin choice. And and they could spot it from a mile away as a political calculation. And does he think, I'm dumb, I'm just going to support the woman? I think if it looks like you're giving away so much of yourself to get elected that it comes off as insincere. Particularly in presidential campaigns, Just the level of coverage and voter attention so high that voters see through a lot of these things. If you get too far away from who you are, if you get too far away from why you're actually running, why you're in it, I think you pay a price for that. And Frank is going to have to fix that or else ultimately pay a price at the polls here. Let's end on Claire. She's been stumping for Frank, watching the debate, revealing a little too much of herself to – Tom Yates, the biographer, she admits to him that every seven years she reevaluates her marriage. And at the moment, they're celebrating their 28th anniversary. She says that she hates how much she needs us, to quote her. I found Claire relatable in this in this moment. I mean, I thought more of Michelle Obama 
you saw her sort of go from this career woman to this um, mom in chief, and she's certainly a very popular first lady, and she's doing an amazing job with the office. What is she, 70% approval rating? But you do sort of, in the back of your mind, wonder, does she think, did I give up this career? Did I give up my own identity? I mean, you're kind of constantly wondering what these very successful, intelligent first ladies are sort of thinking when they suddenly have to plan state dinners and all the trappings that go along with being first lady. I also love the seven years. It was like it was like the election cycle of their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Amy Chozik, political reporter and current Hillary Clinton chronicler for The New York Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And also Ron Klain, former chief of staff to Vice Presidents Al Gore and Joe Biden. Thank you so much. Thank you. On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Jesse Brenneman and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media. On our next episode, we reach the end of the road. When we lose because of you, there will be nothing, no plan, no future. We will only be has-beens. <laughs>